News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So do you know what a lucid dream is? I've I've had one of these. It's where you know you are dreaming in your dream and you can actually make things happen in your dream. Here's the thing. Turns out it's a little bit rare. About half the population has never actually experienced one of those. So what does it mean when we have one? What does it say about us and what is happening in our brains? Well, Dr. Deirdre Barrett is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and editor-in-chief of Dreaming, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Dreams, and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Nice to be with you. Well, I'm kind of fascinated by this topic. So what does it mean to have a lucid dream? Well, the the strict definition is just that you realize you're dreaming while it's happening, Uh, even if that just happens at the the end of a dream. Many people haven't had a prolonged one, but they'll they'll have dreams where just toward the end, they they realize something isn't possible and this, oh my God, I'm dreaming, dawns on them, even if it's just before they wake up. And then it's not part of the definition that you can control things, but many people, as long as they stay awake, asleep, once they have the realization, can then summon content, decide that they want to fly because they're lucid or they want to have a particular person visit them. And sometimes, sometimes that works. And sometimes even though you're realizing you're dreaming, you're not realizing how to bring that about. Okay. So I, this happens to me, I find when I have a scary dream and I don't like it. And in my dream, I can say, I don't like this. I don't want this dream to be scary. And then the dream isn't scary anymore. Does that happen to people? Yes, that, that is, that is, probably the most common trigger of lucidity. It, it, it's, it's generally sort of getting really intensely puzzled about something uh, good, good or bad that makes one question whether it's real, but something really terrible, but also kind of impossible coming at you is a frequent stimulus for that. Um, and many people who say they've only had one or two lucid dreams, they'll be at the end of a nightmare. But, uh, but if you can learn once you realize it's a dream to sort of calm down and keep dreaming rather than, than wake up, then you can do all kinds of interesting things with the state. Oh, really? Like what? Um, like fly, like turn around and ask the monster that was chasing you what they represent in your waking life. Um, Interpretive things, just enjoyable things. But also, um, I don't know if you have this, but many people just find that once they're lucid, anything is fascinating. I mean, just I, I can spend time just sort of poking at a table in awe of how the wood grain looks exactly like real wood. And it's, you kind of learn something about how your mind is actually always constructing what you see, even though it's usually doing it off input from your eyes and other senses, you're not directly seeing the real world. You're, you're, creating a reproduction of it in your brain. And so almost the same kind of process is going on when we dream, but without the external input. 
so so watching your mind create a dream is fascinating aside from what you're doing with it. How do you know, like, how do you find this, Dr. Barrett? Like in your research, how can you see this happening? Um, well, I, I, I've done several research projects related to lucid dreaming. I mean, it, it, it's such an interesting state of consciousness that what, one way to study lucid dreams is to find unusual people who have a lot of lucid dreams. And even though it's very rare for the average person, it's just, just like dream recall is distributed from a couple of dreams a night to multiple ones every night. Having lucid dreams is also distributed from never in your whole life to frequently. So some people do have them every night. That's very rare, but more people have them once a week or something. So when you find people who are frequent lucid dreamers, you can get them to try things in their lucid dreams and, and do more with it. Um, also, a lot of the difference is is the individual baseline and how often it happens. But people can learn to have more lucid dreams. Um, it doesn't work absolutely for everyone, but there are a couple of techniques that will tend to increase your lucid dreams or give you one of these if you've never experienced them. And those two things are what we call daytime reality checks. Um, anything you do as a habit by day often makes it into your dream. So to just get in the habit of literally asking yourself if you might be dreaming, kind of look around, see if anything seems impossible in in your world as you're looking around right now. Could I could this be a dream? And then to have a specific way of checking that works for you which are different for different people, but some common ones are many people find that they can't read properly in their dream, anywhere from they can't read at all to if they read something and look away and look back, it reads differently. Or for a lot of people, clocks work differently in dreams. They won't be huh. advancing slowly minute by minute with with you know, only the numbers one through 12 displayed. This is so um, interesting. So what you're saying is that it is possible to kind of plant seeds in your subconscious for your dreams. Yes. To, to get in the habit of taking seriously the question, am I dreaming? And then eventually, if you're doing that by day, which is kind of an interesting experience by day to seriously ask yourself how you know you're awake. But if you get in that habit, then very often that will spill over and you will eventually do it when you're dreaming. You'll, you'll be saying, am I, am I awake? Is there anything odd going on? Or you'll look for something to read and you'll find that the text is in hieroglyphics or moving around or what you just read changes. Flipping light switches is another is another good test. Um, So so that's that's what you can do by day to make it likely that you'll ask yourself that question for real in a dream and get a, a different answer. And then just telling yourself as you're falling asleep, tonight in my dreams, I want to know I'm dreaming. Just kind of 
repeat that phrase. And if you've ever had a lucid dream, you might kind of relive the moment of, oh, my God, this is a dream um, as an example to your dreaming mind. And that 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 takes a lot of practice and it doesn't work for absolutely everyone. But in research, we find that 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 does increase people's rate of lucid dreaming and for so, people who've never had one that, so that may trigger their first lucid dream. Fascinating. I love it. Dr. Barrett, thank you for your time on that this morning. Okay, nice to be here. I think people are going to try that for sure. That's Dr. Deirdre Barrett, who's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and the editor-in-chief of Dreaming, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Dreams with some great tips. Or if you would like to have a lucid dream, she just essentially laid out the ways for you to do that, actually. This is Mornings with Simi. So this week, we have been introducing you to our new contributor here on Mornings with Simi. It is Scott Shantz, and slowly we are getting to know Scott. So we're doing a little bit every day to get to know him. We're learning all about him in the office, too. Like every morning, we're having very interesting conversations, and Scott is with us. Scott, I feel like you're also learning about us. Yeah, and I'm really enjoying the conversations as well. It's uh, cool to be with a great team that's, you know, plugged into the city and stuff. And it's fun because as we talk about things, certain people are like, oh, I totally agree with you. And then other people are like, I can't believe you hold this opinion about this That's thing. Me. He's talking about me. <laughs> That's because we had a, a, our first disagreement this morning uh, about the, one of the TV shows that Scott thinks is the greatest TV show of all time. And I could not disagree with him more. Yeah, uh, The Sopranos, I think, is one of the greatest television shows of all time. It's one of my favorites, and I've watched it at least five times all the way through. And I think it's overrated. Which I don't get. It's it's won so many <laughs> Emmys. It's won so many awards. It, everything about anything. it is... Well, I mean, it, it does mean that a group of uh, highly accredited people <sighs> who hold these type of opinions all sort of agree <sighs> that it's really, really great. I would say that it's it's been done before. It just didn't do anything for me. Like I tried watching it. I was like, I should watch this show because everybody says it's the greatest of all time. And I watched every episode, all the seasons and got to the end of it and thought, I don't get yeah. it. Yeah, you know, and I do know other people who we tend to agree on a lot of the same things. And these same people like you don't love The Sopranos. But we did agree on my all time favorite show of all. Like Sopranos would be my number one B. My number one A <laughs> is The Wire. I do love The Wire. It's so great. The Wire, though, you must pay attention at all moments lest you miss something. And that's actually one of the things that I like so much about it is I, same thing. I've watched watched it through several times and every time I pick up on new things. Let me also say that I think I also horrified Scott this morning by telling him what my favorite all-time TV show is. Now you can admit it Scott, you were a little taken aback I by I was. That. I certainly was. So Scott believes in doing this thing where you say your answer, you ask a question, you say your answer together on the count of three. Yes. And we'll go one, two, three, say what your, for example, right. favorite TV show is. And hopefully we say the same thing in unison. Hopefully. And I, no, we did not. <laughs> and the look on Scott's face when I said that really, if I had a show that I will watch every single time, love every episode, love that show, I'm going to say it. 
Uh, it's Law and Order SVU. I love that show. Which is so funny to me because in one sense, we're talking about this critical darling, The Wire, you know, and then in another sense, we're talking about Law and Order SVU, which while not bad, it's it's more mass appeal, you know, the, and the bar is, is a little lower. what is wrong with that, lower. Scott? Don't be a snob. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But I love the reason that you talked about watching The Wire. I Or sorry, SVU. Yes. SVU to me, no show has done, contributed more to a societal conversation about sexual assault and consent and how we even view sexual assault than that show. That show has changed people's opinions and lives. And that's so important. And what other show can you say that None. about? But as a person with two uh, young, young girls, I'm going to need to like make sure that I get all the DVDs or you know digital copies so I can show you them as they grow up. Okay. So this is the thing. We are learning about each other. And now what is your most recent favorite show? Ooh, I would have to say The Bear. So Jill Bennett gives me a hard time about this because I haven't watched it yet. And she keeps telling me there's something wrong with me because everybody says, oh, you, I, of all people, because I love food and all that, that I should watch The Bear. So am I really missing out on this one? It's really fantastic. It's about a group of people who, you know, like run a restaurant together and they sort of form a family. And it's it's very intense. It's very realistic. But it has some great sort of undertones about kind of family and mental health and stuff. It's great. Okay, so that's on my list. It's a Disney Plus show. And you have an honorable mention? Uh, Honorable mention, I am going to say, it has to be, of course, The Simpsons. Look at you going old school on this one, huh? Well, old school, but I mean, what other show has been on air that long and still remains consistent? You know, it's... it's And uh, has managed to predict everything that happens in society. There is that as well. <laughs> there is that as well. Okay, I love this. So we want to hear from people on this. We're also like, we want people to get to know Scott yeah. this week is what we're trying to do, right? And so get to know him. He wants... Do you disagree with his hot take on the two greatest shows of all time? I did. Feel free to disagree with them. What's Please. your email address again? Just scott at cknw.com. I'd love to hear from you. Yes, exactly. Start a conversation with Scott. Maybe I'm wrong. You could tell me that too. You know how to email me, but we're going to be hearing more from Scott for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a bet that I am willing to make. Right now, in your fridge, there is something with an expired date on it. So much food gets wasted every year because of expiration dates when they don't necessarily mean that the food has gone bad. It often means that food has just lost some of its freshness. So how closely do you follow those dates at your house? There's a lot of work being done to educate people about food that isn't necessarily expired. Joining us now to talk about this research is Andrea Collins, a senior specialist at the National Resources Defense Council in the U.S. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, Andrew, what are your rules for expired food? Like, how do you tell? So it's one of those things that I think is a a misconception that expired is is kind of the wrong term because most of the time our food isn't expired. And if it was going to go bad, it would probably spoil or it would rot or it would mold. And all of those are things that we can use our senses to find out. So if you smell it and it smells bad, it's probably not good for you to eat. If it looks like it's got some new mold, you should probably avoid it. And if it started to rot, it's not going to taste very good. But the expiration dates, so-called, are oftentimes just quality dates that manufacturers are using to help consumers understand when food will be at its peak freshness. And so your cereal might get a little bit stale after that date, but it isn't going to make you sick. And it's not a reason to toss it, especially as food prices are going up, as we heard earlier. Um, This is one of those places where making sure that we are eating the food that we have that's good to eat is going to keep money in our pockets much better than any other kind of 
uh, approach to inflation. Do you think there's people who kind of need to get wrap their heads around this, though? Like, are people very strict about expiration dates? Absolutely. And it's one of the leading causes of food waste. Um, people look at the dates and believe that it's going to make them sick and toss food that is perfectly fine. And so this is one of the key ways that we have a collective solution to approaching food waste. If each of us takes a second look at those dates and tries to decide whether or not our food is still good and and eats some of that food that we had been tossing previously, we can make a much bigger dent in food waste than we can in in many other uh, kind of systems approaches to to food waste, which are going to take a lot bigger of an issue. It it does depend, though, like where in the food supply chain we're talking about, right? Can you say more? Sorry, I was going to say it it depends on where we are in the food supply chain. Like depending on what product we're talking about, that expiration date obviously is different or the rules for those expiration dates are different. And that's one of the complicated pieces is that each manufacturer has a different policy. And so there's it's difficult for consumers to keep track of it. For us, much of our food is just food. And so the, the ways that manufacturers are using these dates is inconsistent across food types. And it's very complicated and, and confusing for consumers. Okay, so do you have some advice for people or like what do you think we should be doing? For the most part, I say take a second look at your food. Um, don't use the the expiration date as the only reason to decide whether your food is good. Our senses have been honed for millennia and they're a really good indicator for us to know whether food is still good to eat. Are there new rules though that we should put into place? You you mentioned cereal, like is it just a common sense situation or in some cases do we need to have expiration dates? Expiration dates have developed over the course of time as we become more removed from our food. And so it is useful for um, say retailers or grocery stores to have some indicator of stock rotation, but oftentimes they can do those things in ways that are not visible to the household level. So if if we need to make sure that um, eggs, for example, stay on the shelf for a particular amount of time, um, we can do those in ways that aren't as confusing as the dates are currently, because uh, many times consumers are looking at things that might say sell by and are unsure how that then means uh, what you should do with your own refrigerator. And so, yes, there are some parts of the the food supply chain which are using those dates for ensuring that our food is on the shelf for a reasonable amount of time, Um, but they don't mean the things that we think they mean. And so that's one of those places where taking a second look at whether this is supposed to be telling a retailer that uh, it's been on the shelf for a certain amount of time, oftentimes that means that there's time built into it being in your own refrigerator. And so uh, the sell-by date especially is one that we should assume means that there's plenty of time for us to continue eating it past that date, if you can determine that that's what that's actually doing. Yeah, let's specify that. So there's a difference between the wording, right? So sell-by means one thing, best before means something else. Yes. Sell-by is one of the few that uh, we are more likely to be able to tell. Sometimes I've done a look in my own refrigerator and there's at least 18 different types of, of words. And so it would what we really need is a policy to move us towards a consistent date labeling scheme so that we have an understanding of what all of these mean. Sell-by almost always is a, a, a date that's meant for retailers or manufacturers to understand how long a product has been on their shelf with an expectation that there's time still on our shelves after 
the sell by. Um, best buy is one that probably means that it's a quality date. So does um, enjoy buy or freshest buy or peak quality buy. Um, but because these are not standardized, it's it's difficult for us to tell. Right. Because I was thinking about even like meat products, they generally have like if you go to the butcher shop, the area of your grocery store, that it'll have a sell by mm-hmm. date on there. But that doesn't mean that it's bad right after that date. That's right. And especially with things like meat, where the the signs that it's um, starting to age are things like oxidation, which is going to make your meat turn into a, a slightly darker color. And that even is still good to eat. Um, it's just now starting to be in the air more. And so if when you cook it, you'll kill any kind of a pathogen that might be on it. And as long as you're following food safety, you'll you'll be perfectly fine. And that's one of those things where additionally, you could be freezing that meat past the date as well. And by putting it in your freezer, you're stopping any um, spoilage activity that could be happening otherwise, and you're extending the life of it. So using those as an indicator for um, how you, you could be doing other things if you're not going to be able to eat your food in a timely manner, it's those are ways to extend the life too. Okay, so even if it's chicken, I have a producer here who is really obsessed with expiration dates, sell-by dates on meat products, and is super concerned about that. So does the same apply for chicken? Uh, chicken is another one where you really want to make sure you're cooking it. And so the date isn't going to be as much of an indicator for food safety as how you're cooking your food. And if you're getting it to the right temperature, you're going to kill any bacteria that might be on it. So again, uh, using your senses to make sure that it hasn't spoiled and then cooking it properly is going to really help you better than the expiration date would. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of food education that needs to be done here, Andrea, right? Because we don't get taught this stuff, do we? That's right. And we say that a lot of it is common sense, but you're right. We haven't been taught it. And this is one of the places where I hope that uh, household cooks are going to have a little bit more confidence in their own skills. This is one of those places where if we do trust our senses, we'll be able to make a a bigger dent in how we're using our food and how we're valuing our food. Um, But we do need some education. And if we can move towards more streamlined date labels, we would then be able to educate people about what the meanings of these are. It's just too hard of a a topic to tackle while we have a huge plethora of dates to be educating around. That is so true. Andrea, thank you so much for your time on that. Happy to be with you. That's Andrea Collins, who's a senior specialist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Great point there, right? Because when you think about what do you see on your food, you see a sell-by date sometimes, or you see a best-before date, you see an expiry date. Those are all different things. They mean different things things. And especially it does depend on the particular type of food product you're talking about here. So you got to use your senses. You got to figure it out on your own. How do you use that common sense? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are getting more details about the World Cup, right? It is coming to Vancouver in 2026 and planning is well underway. But boy, there is a long list of things that need to be dealt with. So let's find out where we are at. Joining us now is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim to talk about that. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks, Simi, for having us. Okay, so I understand there's a lot of work being done. What What is the update? What is the latest on this? 
well, it's an exciting time in the city of Vancouver when it uh, relates to uh, World Cup. We had a brand launch party uh, yesterday, actually, at Brew Hall, and um, there were about 240 people there, and FIFA streamed in from Vegas to uh, show us what the brand would look like. And today, we're actually lighting up uh, a lot of buildings across the city uh, to show the colors of um, the FIFA brand. Okay, what about the the kind of organizational issues then? I know there's a lot of concern, for instance, like about hotel rooms. Where are we at with that? Well, you know, that, that's obviously a work in progress. Uh, it's not as if we're going to be building a lot of hotels uh, over the next uh, two years uh, in time or two and a half years in time. Uh, so we have to look at innovative solutions, um, you know, uh, Airbnb, be it, um, you know, bringing cruise ships. You know, there are a lot of options on the table and we'll be looking at them. Okay, so we'll be hearing more about that then, because I know there's already concerns about Airbnb, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely, and we well, every, everything we do, we want to make sure we strike the right balance uh, between, you know, um, getting, um, you know, having a very successful World Cup, but also making sure that residents of Vancouver and people that want to live in here aren't disadvantaged. Okay, so what is Vancouver doing right now? I understand that there's been some traveling going on, people going to find out how is this done in other cities. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, it started uh, last year. Um, um, for example, I, I actually went to Qatar, as I think everyone knows. Uh, by the way, on my own dime, uh, it did not cost the city of Vancouver uh, a cent, but we have uh, reps from uh, the city of Vancouver, and, um, uh, you know, we, we have people from FIFA that are from Vancouver uh, that are traveling the world, um, seeing how things are uh, working, and they're bringing all that knowledge back um, to our uh, committee, so to speak, and we're taking those learnings and we're rolling them in, into the plan. We have a lot of work to do on those grass fields, though, too, don't we? Uh, we really do, but uh, that's something that uh, FIFA is going to be helping us out with. So um, I have no concerns whatsoever on that front. Okay, so then like, what are their requirements? Do they come here? How often do they check up on us to see what the progress is like? You know, I, I don't know those uh, details. Uh, I'm not uh, deep in the operations, per se, um, but, uh, you know, uh, they... Uh, Make no doubt about it, FIFA, they run a pretty professional operation and uh, we will be in great shape um, come 2026. Yeah, how big of a deal is this, do you think, for the city of Vancouver? Oh, it's massive. Um, my personal opinion, I think it's way bigger than the Olympics. Um, you know, I, and really? don't get me wrong. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And we love the Olympics. I, I, you know, if you go back to 2010, uh, the streets were alive and it was absolutely amazing. Now, when you look at the Olympics, uh, especially the winter ones, uh, you don't have the entire world participating. At World Cup, you have the whole world participating. Um, so the attention's on Vancouver, and we're going to have, you know, um, we're going to have a bunch of different com- uh, countries represented uh, on the field, and so it's going to draw people from all over the planet to the city of Vancouver. It, it, it's almost going to be like we have a mini Olympics every single day in the city of Vancouver during that time. Right. Do we have an idea of when we will know just how many games we will be having here in Vancouver? Uh, as soon as we find out and we're allowed to disclose, I will personally disclose it um, uh, to the city of Vancouver. Okay, because I know there's a lot of anticipation about that, right? Because it does feel like this was a long process to get to this point. You know, it really does feel like a long process. But what I can tell you is uh, we are lobbying for as many games as possible. Um, and, you know, um, please stay tuned. What is some of the work that you've heard about that has to be done here? You talked about hotels and things, but what it, and the fields. 
what do we have to do to get things ready for this? Well, I, I think it's multifaceted. Uh, when it comes to the actual games, per se, there are a lot of things that the city of Vancouver and the province has to help FIFA out on. You know, um, for example, um, building or identifying uh, two locations where we can build identical uh, practice facilities so no team has an advantage over the other, making sure security's in place, you know, all the day-to-day operational things that go um, with a big event. And then we have to get the city prepared. You know, uh, we have to make sure that our businesses and our neighbourhoods, they're ready to, uh, you know, not only um, absorb uh, what's going on, but really lever it and, um, you know, take uh, the city uh, to another level. And uh, that's the hard work that we're going to be focused on over the next three and a half years. You talk about those upgraded training facilities then. So does that also mean that there could be some like legacy projects for Vancouver out of this? If you're going to build some serious training facilities, that feels like something we should be able to use down the line. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's two legacy, at least two legacy uh, um uh, items here. One, uh, the practice facilities. Uh, I think it'll be great. And Vancouver could really use, you know, um, upgraded facilities when it comes to sports. So that that's going to be a big one. And the second thing is actually taking uh, FIFA World Cup and using it to lever um, what we want to promote in the city of Vancouver over the next 30 years. And I think that's going to be the bigger legacy. And if you think of the Olympics in 2010, we created this um, um, atmosphere or this mindset of we could be the best at anything on the planet. And I think uh, when World Cup uh, comes uh, along, you're going to see a lot of that. Okay, so what do you think are the biggest priorities? And leading up to this, we've got three years left here. What do we have to do? Oh, there's a ton. Um, Like I said, you know, uh, building those practice facilities, making sure the operational plan is in place uh, so we can host uh, an incredibly successful uh, World Cup. And in fact, we talked about this last night. We want to, like after 2026, we all want um, the whole world to look at uh, the whole cities and say Vancouver knocked the cover off the ball and we were the best whole city. Um, But also just uh, getting getting our city ready um, to uh, lever... Um, off this amazing event and show everyone that Vancouver has swagger and we are the best city on the planet. Uh, And that will take a lot of work, but it's going to be fun work and it's going to be exciting. All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing some more of the details. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. That is Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver, talking about the preparations for the World Cup. He he said he thinks that they're going to be bigger than the Olympics. Now, remember what a big deal that was for the city. Do you think that's going to be the case here? I know the World Cup is a giant event. Is it going to have that kind of huge impact on the city? Let me know. Simi at CKNW.com. Like, I, I still have questions. The hotel room one is a big one. Where is everybody going to stay? We have a shortage, a really serious one of hotels in this city. Try to book a room in this city and you will see exactly how expensive it is and how much of a shortage we have. And you can't just build those overnight. We clearly will not be able to build enough. So what does that mean? Does that mean expanding Airbnb? Does that mean giving out special, you know, short stay licenses just for World Cup attendees? Like there's a lot. And what does that mean for rentals in this city? What does that mean? Does that mean that people will say, listen, I'm going to make some money off this World Cup and I'm going to get rid of my tenants? Like so many questions for a city that already faces a very, very tight housing and accommodation situation, right? So let's hear what you have to say about this. You can call or text or buzz line. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Obviously, there's a lot going on here, a lot for us to discuss. 
This is Mornings with Simi. There's still quite a concern about wildfires in our province and next door in Alberta. We've got a lot of people on evacuation alert and hopefully there will be some cooler weather coming our way. At least it's not as hot, hot as it was right a couple of days ago. And you know, when it comes to wildfires, the vast majority of people, rightfully so, are more worried about heading away from wildfire flames. But there are people whose job it is to do otherwise, to actually go towards them and not just fight them, but to find out where they are, what's going on so they can tell other people that. Well, that's what we're going to talk about right now, actually. Joining us is Jordan Prentice. Jordan is an associate editor and video reporter for EnergeticCity.ca in Fort St. John. Jordan, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. What is the wildfire situation like up there right now? Um, right now it's actually, I have good news. Um, it seems to have kind of calmed down a little bit. Uh, firefighters were able to find some reprieve with, honestly, the problem up here is the wind more combined with the drought. So the wind calmed down and the firefighters, especially on the Stoddart Creek wildfire, they were able to assess the perimeter and do some controlled and aerial like ignitions to get it under control. So, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What has the drought been like up there? How bad has it been? Well, actually, for me, so we went, we finished fall and went into winter in a drought. And then um, we had snow up until probably like a month ago. And then we came out of of snow to just summer. Like we didn't, there was no spring. So there was no chance for Um, the like the earth to kind of gain moisture um, to you know fight off the the fire so it's just super dry up here right now oh what a terrible situation now I understand you've also been like reporting on the ground when other people are going away from the wildfires Jordan you're actually going (laughs) towards them what is that like um I mean it's I don't want to say it's fun but it is like it's I, I don't get me wrong to me like I will never ever go where a road is closed or like disobey, you know, RCMP or BC wildfire service. But I, I like to, you know, just kind of find a back route because there's a lot of those up here. And uh, it's, it's interesting. Like you don't really realize how close you are until you're right there. (laughs) I can imagine too, but like, there's a reason why you're doing this too, right, Jordan? Like you're obviously trying to tell people what's going on. Yeah, of course. I mean, I just feel like when something is that close to home, for example, the Stoddard Creek wildfire was just 20 kilometers away from Fort St. John and all the surrounding areas were put, were actually put on evacuation order. So I just really feel like people need to see so they so they don't assume. And if, if they can see exactly what is happening and what it looks like and how far it actually is, then they have an idea of what we're actually dealing with here, you know? And how have people been dealing with the situation? I know that a lot of people were on evacuation alert. Uh, are people, they worried, do they get ready to pack up? Um, well, the day the alert came out, um, and, you know, first of all, I just have to give a shout out to, to, to energeticcity.ca. Our newsroom is so small and we had never dealt with anything like an evacuation alert before. And, and I was just really impressed with how, how the team handled it. Um, you know, at, we, there's not a lot of media outlets up here, so people were really worried and confused about what was going on. There was crazy lineups at the gas stations, and everybody was just kind of leaving town. Um, yeah, it, it was a little bit crazy, hectic for a minute there, but um, like I said, as soon as the firefighters had that reprieve, 
you could kind of just feel the whole energy in town sort of like calm down, you know? Right. I can imagine it would be a pretty tense situation. Are people pretty good about, you know, like paying attention, listening to those evacuation orders and alerts? Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, so where the Stoddard Creek fire is, it's actually kind of right in the middle of a lot of farmland. Um, so to my understanding, a lot, a lot of farmers um, kind of wanted to try and protect their properties, um, which is, you know, understandable. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how many people actually evacuated and how many people, um, how many people stayed behind. But I do know there was a tactical evacuation um, in place mm-hmm. as well. Um, How important is it, Jordan, to do the work that you do, right? Because obviously it's harder and harder these days to make sure people get reliable, accurate information, especially in in a place like Fort St. John. So how important is your work? I mean, it's important to me to to share the truth with people and show them exactly what is going on. I think that everybody in their community deserves to know the, the truth about what's going on. So I would say it's fairly important, especially up here where there isn't a lot of um, video reporters, you know? <laughs> right. Okay. So would you feel that it's calmed down? For now? Are people apprehensive about what is ahead? Because this is just the beginning, right? We haven't even hit summer yet. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, people are definitely comparing it to, I think it was 2016 or 2017 um, with the big fire in Fort McMurray. Um, there's definitely a lot of concern about what the fire season is going to look like in northern BC and I'm sure like in southern BC in the interior as well. Is there discussion in people's homes about how to fireproof? I know there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the things that homeowners can do. Do do people do that? Um, honestly, Simi, the fire, the Fort St. John Fire Department actually told me the main cause of these fires is cigarettes. You're kidding me. No, it's, it's, I mean, lightning as well, but most of the fires that have happened up here, except for, I think, the Donnie Creek wildfire, it's been because of uh, their human cause. Not all cigarettes, but I was told that the most common cause of these fires is cigarette butts. So there's a lot of emphasis on not disposing of your cigarette butts irresponsibly. Um, Is there a lot of education around that? Because that feels like that should be an important message getting out there. It's definitely a conversation and it's definitely something that is, you know, we we put out stories about it all the time, um, talking about it for sure. And what do people say? Do they understand that? Because this feels it's like 100% (laughs) preventable, right? I I mean, yeah, people are pretty shocked. Like the general population. I mean, I don't think the people who are disposing of their cigarettes irresponsibly are going to say anything. But I know that, that on like, you know, on Facebook, people kind of are like, are you kidding? <laughs> well, you know. yeah, that's exactly my reaction to that. Too. If you're living in a kind of tinder dry region, the fact that people are still throwing cigarette butts around is just, you know, astounding to me. But Jordan, thank you very much for your work and good luck. Oh, thanks, Simi. Thanks for having me. That is Jordan Prentice. So Jordan is kind of a one person band, an associate editor and video reporter for energeticcity.ca in Fort St. John. So local reporter on the ground there trying to get all the information about wildfires to pass that along to the community uh, because think about how important that is in a place like Fort St. John, right? There's not a huge number of, of media doing the work there and obviously trying to find out the information from those in charge too. 
But can you imagine cigarette butts? Like that's actually the main cause. What she's hearing from fire officials up there about how these fires are getting started. That it just it just blows my mind in this day and age. When you know what things are like out there and how dry things are, that people would still do that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we do love a good nature story around here. And do we have one for you now? It's about a mountain larger than the peak of Whistler. And it's right there off the coast of Vancouver Island. And it was just discovered. Let's find out how. Sam Quayer joins us now, expedition coordinator and nautical archaeologist at Texas A&M University. Sam, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Sam, how does one become a nautical archaeologist? Because I've interviewed a lot of people. First time I've heard that title. Sure. So we, you know, there's a couple different ways to do it. Usually you have to go to school for a degree. Um, Sometimes that's in history. Sometimes that's in archaeology. Sometimes people get a degree in something like philosophy or law, and then they come back later and get a graduate degree in underwater archaeology. Um, You go and get experience in the field, and then you you, you find find out whatever your path is. There's so many different places to go in underwater archaeology. Okay. And so what is underwater archaeology? How does this work? Essentially, it's the study of uh, anything human leaves behind culturally um, underwater. You know, it can be a port city, the remains of a port city. It can be a shipwreck. Um, Increasingly, we're finding indigenous sites that have been inundated since the last ice age. Um, So kind of anywhere on that spectrum can be considered underwater archaeology. Okay, so what were you looking for then off the coast of Vancouver Island? Sure. So we're actually... uh, I uh, work for NOAA, which is a nautical, or sorry, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration now for the U.S. government. And we were actually heading out on an expedition over to Alaska. We were leaving Seattle on our way to Alaska, and during these transits, we tend to look at old mapping data and try to line up our ship, Okeanos Explorer, to line up with this old data to just expand what we know of the deep sea. And we happened to pick going over this, uh, this line, kind of uh, over this mountain, and uh, we're able to kind of image what had been updated as far as our, our um, you know, just the old chart. And then this new chart proved that this mountain was much taller than we previously thought. Really? Like how much taller? Uh, we're talking maybe double the size that we originally thought. Granted, a lot we don't know a lot about what is actually in the depths of our ocean. We've only covered maybe 25% in high-resolution sensors. And so there's a whole, there's almost 50% of our planet's surface is unknown to us with modern human sensors. Okay, that's amazing. So there, here's this kind of underwater mountain, and it, it's almost the size instead of, of Mount Baker. That's, that's huge. Yeah, and it's, it's, what's amazing about it is this is just one of maybe over 100,000 that scientists believe could be worldwide. So there's much that's hiding in our depth. Wow. Okay, so... That is so surprising. So why, why do we have so much trouble or in the past, I guess, measuring these? Is it new technology that makes a difference now? But I think it's just a combination of area and technology. Um, before, when they were looking to, say, have an understanding of what the sea looked like, they would have a lead line and rope. And since you just measure at different points along as the ship transited a certain area and record those depths and kind of get an understanding of what the bottom looked like. Now we're able to use a whole suite of different... Um, sonars, multi-beam sonars and other sonars to project sound in the water and get a reflection back and better understand what's there from the reflection from the seafloor. And so part of it is a logistics issue and part of it is just a technology issue. I mean, the, the ocean's a very vast place and so being able to cover it all takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so what do we know about this particular uh, mountain under there? Do we know how biodiverse it is? 
Um, not the specific one, but we do have a lot of evidence from other seamounts that have been investigated kind of all over the world by different uh, scientific groups. And typically, these tend to be biodiverse hotspots. They influence the ocean currents around them, and they're able to uh, support a much wider variety of life. And so when you have, say, filter feeders like deep-sea corals and things like that, that will attract other kind of marine organisms, which then can support the predators and kind of up the chain. And so you'll start with these small organisms and then all the way up to something like large commercial fish or whales or sharks or, you know, squid, anything like that. I mean, it's a huge variety and diversity of life in this area. It's kind of amazing that you kind of found this by chance, right? So is it really hard to go looking for these things? I guess it depends on perspective, right? I mean, on one part, it's nice to be lucky. But on the other hand, uh, we had an idea that something like this was there. So they're able to actually get a pretty rough estimate of what is on the seafloor through measurement of gravity from satellites. And by using gravity, they can at least say, hey, there's some kind of topographic feature here. We don't have it in a very high resolution. And just like in this case, we can be thousands of meters off. But it gives you an idea that, hey, something is here. Maybe it's worth investigating in more detail. So then what will this help you do then? I understand you're collecting all this data. What, what kind of use do you put that to in the future? Sure. So this data can be used for all types of purposes. Here at NOAA, we make this data publicly accessible. So if, let's say there is another scientist that's really, invest, or really invested and wants to investigate this area further. They can use our data to kind of make a basis to get grants to go out there and do it. But on a wider scale... Uh, we can use the information to better understand subsea hazards, whether it's something that a ship or a submarine or something may run into, or something that, um, you know, maybe it's, especially around kind of Vancouver, um, you have to worry about tsunamis potentially from earthquakes. We may get a better understanding of what these fault zones look like to better predict when kind of that next big earthquake may happen. Um, and then also just being, uh, being able to protect and have sustainable fisheries or be able to protect really unique areas of the ocean. We can't really protect areas that we don't know much about. Wow. So were you able to just, were you continuing on to do your other expedition or did this kind of stop things for a little while? No, we're continuing on. We kind of drove by, got a really good record of the uh, the top of the seamount and we're actually currently out using you from the ship. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Sam. Thank you so much.